Donald Trump can't leave the courtroom, so just to rub it in a little, Pod Save America is going on tour. He's probably asleep right now, but if he were conscious, he'd be so, so jealous. The Democracy Rails tour begins in Brooklyn on June 26th, followed by Boston on June 28th. Then we go to Madison, Phoenix, Ann Arbor, and Philly. See all the tour dates and get your tickets now at crooked.com slash events. Hello, Pod Save the World listeners. Thank you for tuning in. My guest today is a defense expert named Kelly Magsman. We talked for a while about President Trump's speech last night about his new strategy for Afghanistan, and we talked about previous efforts to beat back the Taliban and get to a peace agreement and in that country and why it has been so difficult for 16 plus years. Kelly is an expert in defense policy. She's also brutally honest about the failings under both administrations. So I think it is an important piece of context for a very, very difficult problem. Joining me on Pod Save the World today is Kelly Magsman. Kelly is one of those public servants that I've talked about many times who worked in national security positions under Democrats and under Republicans. She was most recently the Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Asian and Pacific Security Affairs. Prior to that, she was on the NSC in various positions, including Special Assistant to the President and Senior Director for Strategic Planning, Director and Senior Advisor for Middle East Reform in the wake of the Arab Spring. I'm sure that was really fun. And Director for Iran, which meant she was in all the really cool meetings about Iran. Kelly, thank you so much for being on the show. Great to be here. So I wanted to jump on the phone with you to talk about President Trump's speech last night and the policy he laid out. So I figure we'll leave the style points to the cable show's What did you think of the policy Trump laid out for Afghanistan? He didn't talk about troop numbers. He didn't talk about how we'll measure success. He didn't talk about a time frame for withdrawal. What do you think of the policy was and and what was new here? Uh, To be honest, I mean, I thought the speech was, you know, underwhelming. I guess it could have been worse. You know, my biggest takeaway was really the disconnect between what he was laying out as our objectives and then actually the strategy itself. Um, And what I mean by that is he sort of put an emphasis on fighting terrorism and defeating the Taliban and sort of suggested that, you know, whatever adjustment he was making was going to achieve that objective. He didn't really define winning um, in any sort of appreciable way. There was no real sense of what the actual goal was. I mean, all the stuff that we actually needed to hear from him was very, very vague. Um, So having no end goal other than it not being nation-building is, you know, pretty problematic. And I think, you know, if the reports are right that he's going to send 4,000 troops, you know, that's not going to make a measurable difference in turning the tide on the Taliban. I mean, I think it'll help, you know, fill some training gaps. It'll give General Nicholson a little bit more flexibility to send, you know, trainers out to, you know, districts at the battalion level. But it's really not a silver bullet for success in Afghanistan. So, Can you describe in sort of basic terms, what is the current mission? Like, what are U.S. service members doing in Afghanistan today? So we have, we currently have two missions. We have a train, advise, and assist mission called the Resolute Support Mission. And that's actually us and our NATO partners and allies training Afghan national security and defense forces to, you know, do the fight themselves. So that's mission number one. And that's the bulk of our our forces are actually devoted to that mission. The second mission is a U.S. counterterrorism, unilateral counterterrorism mission, which is a totally separate mission. And that's about, we have about 2,000 or so troops devoted to that. So there are really only two missions. 
And what's interesting is that, you know, General Nicholson, when he sort of suggested that he needed more troops, he, he was pretty explicit about wanting them for the train, advise, and assist mission and not the CT mission, which he thought he had adequate troops for. So what's interesting now is that the president is emphasizing counterterrorism, but I think largely the troop increase is going to go to the training mission. Oh, that's really interesting because the CT mission is probably being handled primarily by special forces, the, the most highly trained individuals exactly. in our military, whereas the training mission can be handled more by rank and file, right, or, or people who are specialized in training of soldiers. Exactly. I mean, I think it's it's a little hard to separate the two. I mean, they, they obviously feed, feed off each other. I mean, one thing I think people need to understand about the counterterrorism mission is that we need, you know, an intelligence infrastructure around the country. We need good intelligence. We need good human intelligence networks. And so some of that interacts with other things that we're doing around the country. So it's not super easy to separate the two, but there are two distinct missions. Right. Big picture, how are things going in Afghanistan? How strong is the Taliban? How confident are you in the government's ability to provide security and services and, and keep control of at least major population centers? Yeah, I think of it, you know, kind of in three, on three levels. You know, on the security level, you know, we went in there to defeat al-Qaeda, which is basically defeated. Mm-hmm. But we've got this raging Taliban insurgency. And it's true that they are, you know, able to sort of pick up more and more districts. Now, some of that's, you know, expected. Um, we don't expect the Afghans to retain every single district. But it's happening a lot, and it's, you know, they're, they're really pushing the Afghan forces and the Afghan forces are having a really hard time, you know, blunting their, their insurgency. You've got also new terror groups starting to pop up, like ISIS, although, you know, lower levels earlier this year, but are start, starting to, to rise up. So you, you have a kind of a really crappy security picture. Mm-hmm. You know, the Afghan National Security Forces, they're really, they're hardworking guys, but they're suffering, you know, really high casualties um, and attrition rates. I mean, it's, it's pretty profound. And so... You know, the security situation doesn't look good. I mean, mm-hmm. General Nicholson called it a stalemate. That's probably about right, but it's a stalemate trending badly. Right. You know, you're starting to see more high-profile attacks in Kabul from the Haqqani network, which is part of the Taliban. And that's putting pressure on the Afghan government. And then the Afghan government itself, you know, is constantly at war with itself politically. There's this cold marriage between Ghani and, and Chief Executive Abdullah, which we constantly play marriage broker for. <laughs> You know, economic growth is not good. They have rampant, you know, corruption across the country. Yeah. So the political situation doesn't look that great either. It's relatively stable right now, but it, it goes through kind of periods of instability. The other, but the good news is there is some good news. Um, you know, we've got some good social indicators. Life expectancy rates are up. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got 8 million kids, you know, in school, but there are also a lot of Afghan civilians dying in this war. I mean, just about 30,000 so far in the conflict. Wow. Um, so it's not a great picture. Yeah. One other thing President Trump mentions pretty frequently is is an argument that Obama's national security team was overbearing and constrained the military from operating the way it needed to operate, I guess is the only way to describe it. Can you talk about that? Can you explain what rules of engagement are and how things have or have not changed with respect to the military's rules of engagement or approach to civilian casualties from Obama to Trump? Yeah, I mean, this is this is always a tricky issue. I mean, there's always a tension between the headquarters and the field mm-hmm. <laughs> on, on these issues. Um, I think it's important for people to understand that, you know, U.S. troops are not performing a combat role, a direct combat role. Right. And I think people forget about that. But that may change under President Trump. He wasn't clear last night about 
the kinds of new authorities he was granting them. So we'll, it'll, I'll be interested to see if he changes that. But, you know, we, we try to, you know, right now we're in a training, advising, and assisting role with the Afghans. And that means, you know, our troops can sometimes go out to, you know, spots that are dangerous um, to help the Afghans. But they're not the ones leading the fight. That's the Afghans. I think that could potentially change under the president. Well, wow, that would be a significant change. Which would be a change. big, would be a, you know, he alluded to it last night. He said, you know, we're going to take the gloves off, basically, and, and give them the authorities to, to fight the Taliban. So I guess my question is, you know, are we going to go back to war directly with the Taliban? Right. Another thing President Trump talked about was putting a renewed focus on Pakistan. Again, that's not really new. But can you explain why Pakistan is so important to the security situation in Afghanistan and how that approach of this apparently renewed emphasis on Pakistan does or does not differ from previous administrations? Uh, the Pakistan challenge, uh, my favorite. <laughs> yeah. um, well, listen, the Pakistanis, the fundamental problem is the Pakistanis are willing to fight terrorists that threaten them at home, but they're also willing to violently you know, export violent proxies to advance their interests in Afghanistan. So that's a problem. And do the same thing with India. The challenge is that we want them to continue to fight terrorism in Pakistan. We don't want those tribal areas you know, to be safe havens for terrorists. So we do provide them a lot of assistance to help in that in that regard. It sounds like the Trump team is going to either you know take away the assistance or you know dramatically curb it. But I think you know it's also important to understand that we need Pakistan for you know supply lines. Our we call them the G locks, the ground lines of control. You know we need them for that. Now whether or not we have an alternative to that, we'll see. So I think you know cutting off security assistance or you know designating their officials, which is something I read in the news today, mm-hmm. that's going to make us feel better that we're kind of punishing Pakistan, but it's also going to potentially have costs for our interests. And we may be willing to pay those costs, but we need to have a plan for when that happens. Yeah, the G locks are are essentially how we supply our troops in Afghanistan, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's important to remember back to some of the major ruptures we had with Pakistan around the uh, Bin Laden operation, around uh, an individual who was um, apparently employed by the CIA who shot a couple of people at a traffic light. Things can get worse with the PACs, but, you know, they are double dealers in many respects. It, absolutely. And I think, you know, listen, it's right that Trump team is focusing on Pakistan, but I just don't think... I don't expect it to actually change Pakistani behavior at the end of the day, and, and it actually also make it a lot worse. Mm-hmm. So today, the Trump administration, their, their communications team did a very good job for once, walking reporters through their Afghan review process, the president's thinking, how his views changed over time. But as I read those stories in the Times and in the Post, it felt like Groundhog Day. Like We did the exact <laughs> same sort of review of Afghanistan policy and Pakistan policy and Southeast Asia policy in 2009. We debated the same questions. Steve Bannon, of all people, was quoted as saying something I thought was pretty smart, which was for 16 years from the neocons to progressives to Obama's people, they all thought they were making great decisions. Why are we any smarter than they are? He has a point. Has every president just fallen into a trap of somehow thinking that they're doing something new in Afghanistan that will yield different results when on its face, these policy choices look very, very similar? There are never any really good options with Afghanistan. I feel like I see that too much. But, you know, I think it's, it's, a, it's a tough nut to crack. And you're right. We, you know, we went through these same questions when we were deliberating on all these issues, and we came up with really, you know, great answers. <laughs> you know, I think the, the challenge is that as long as the risks of, potential risks of leaving are higher than the known risks of staying, it's going to be very hard for any president to make that decision. I mean, it's always easier to start a war than to, to end a war. 
And I think the president, you know, the current president, came in with a preconceived notion of what he was going to do. And then, you know, he's surrounded by, you know, veterans of the Afghanistan war who walked him through the potential downsides of leaving. Mm-hmm. And I think it's it's hard when a president's presented with those kinds of choices, and especially a president like this one, frankly, who doesn't have a lot of political courage, in my opinion, yeah. you know, isn't going to, you know, push back on some of that. Right. You wrote a great piece for foreignpolicy.com today that, that sort of outlined your views, and I feel the same way as you know, the position you articulated, that I'm torn here. I mean, I, I don't want the government in Kabul to fall. I don't want ISIS to find a safe haven in Afghanistan. So I'm sympathetic to requests from DOD to help fill the gaps in the training mission. But at the same time, I wonder, you know, we've been doing this for 16 years. What has changed? We had 100,000 troops in Afghanistan in 2010 and 11. It didn't solve the problem. And as you wrote in your column, 2,400 U.S. troops have died in Afghanistan. 20,000 were wounded in action. We provided over $100 billion in assistance since 2002, and that doesn't include the money we spent doing the actual fighting. And then couple that with the fact that this military effort on this 4,000 new troops is reportedly the military output of this announcement last night, although he didn't say it for some reason. It's not paired up with any kind of diplomatic effort to try to get us to a peace process. So that's not really a question as much as me hand-wringing out loud, but like, what's your take? I mean, what do you think you would advise President Trump to do if you were sitting in the Oval Office last week? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it is it is really hard. I mean, I think the other, you point out the issue on the diplomacy. I mean, the Trump administration, you know, is looking at this very much through the security lens, which is understandable, and that's what a lot of administrations do, because it's a measurable lens, right? right. The number of troops you put in, et cetera. But really, at the end of the day, is you know these conflicts end usually by political settlement. And what I didn't hear from the president last night, and we'll see if he you know clarifies in the coming days. But you know, what is the strategy to actually bring the conflict to an end? And you know, they talked about how you know it's it's important not to have timelines for withdrawal, which I I can understand and I actually support. But let's keep in mind, I mean, the Taliban's not going anywhere. Yeah. Right. <laughs> And, you know, this additional kind of moderate increase in troops is not going to make, you know, that kind of a material difference. At some point, we need to be able to, to actually come to the negotiating table. Now, listen, you know, maybe the theory is correct. You put in the troops, you know, we'll see if we can get some momentum back on the security side, and maybe that forces the, the Taliban to the table in a productive way. I just don't see that happening. So yeah. I think at some point, you know, we need to confront the reality you know, this, <laughs> we could be there for a very long time. You know, some people have talked about how this could be our generation's Korea. <laughs> yeah, General Petraeus talked about that, I believe. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, it's not always good to compare uh, different countries and, and theaters of war, but I think there is something to, you know, the American, an American president leveling with the American public about the fact that we'll probably be there for quite some time. Yeah. Or, you know, at some point we call the ball, let the chips fall where they may. But it's it's a tough. There is no you know theory of victory that is going to be a satisfying theory of victory. Yeah, and just to go back to the diplomatic piece you mentioned, under the Obama administration, we had a position that was called the special representative for Afghanistan and Pakistan. The first person to hold it was Richard Holbrook, who is a, a legendary diplomat, just like a, a towering figure at the State Department. Their sole job was to try to get the Taliban, the Afghans, the Pakistanis, the international community to the table to negotiate a peace settlement. And that is 
a brutally complicated, difficult process, but one that I think you know only happens if you're pushing for it on the daily basis. But they've eradicated that position, right? They got rid of the office unceremoniously in the night. <laughs> so, I mean, that's the thing. You need to have somebody whose sole focus it is to do the diplomacy. And you're right, it's, it's every day being on the road, going to capitals, trying to organize, you know, all of the disparate interests of these regional countries. And you need to have somebody do that, and they don't. The other thing that was interesting is, you know, for all the talk of the regional strategy, you know, it's very much focused on India and Pakistan. Yeah. But the looming large is China, in my mind. Mm-hmm. And, you know, frankly, the Chinese have been drafting off of our security investment there for quite some time. And so my question for the president and his team is, how do we get the Chinese productively engaged? But to do that, you've got to have somebody whose job that is. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Listen, if you're listening to Pod Save the World, you need some therapy. If you're watching the events around the world that might freak you out, we've got this election coming down the pike. There's a lot of stuff that people uh, are stressed about, that are anxious about, stuff that makes you lose sleep, and therapy can help. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash crookedworld. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash crookedworld. Donald Trump can't leave the courtroom, so just to rub it in a little, Pod Save America is going on tour. He's probably asleep right now, but if he were conscious, he'd be so, so jealous. The Democracy or Else tour begins in Brooklyn on June 26th, followed by Boston on June 28th. Then we go to Madison, Phoenix, Ann Arbor, and Philly. See all the tour dates and get your tickets now at crooked.com slash events. All right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House, or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference, sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com and this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. So can you talk a little bit more about China? I mean, are they... Is your point that they're looking for to continue their investment in sort of minerals and other natural resources? Or like, what is their play in, in Afghanistan? Their play is to watch us bleed while they, while they are kind, of, kind of sit to the side and not have to get involved and maybe do a few investments here and there. I do think that they may be getting a little bit more nervous about the security situation. So I think mm-hmm. they probably will welcome an additional American security investment. But at some point... You know, if China is going to be this new player in the international order, they've also got to step up. Yeah. Do you think it matters that President Trump hasn't visited Afghanistan yet? 
I don't even know if he's gone over to Arlington National Cemetery uh, and visited Section 60, which is the burial ground for many of the U.S. service members killed in Iraq or Afghanistan. And I ask that not to take a shot at him, but because I know how much those visits and how much those conversations impacted President Obama during his 2009 Afghanistan review process. And it feels like that is a critical piece of any decision about sending more troops. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a problem. Um, I think his overall level of interest in the issue is actually a problem. I mean, he hasn't he hasn't met with the general we have there, General Nicholson, um, which is also fascinating to me that he made such a major decision without actually you know, personally talking to the commander. He hasn't visited. Uh, you know, they don't have... It's, it's just as if he doesn't want to deal with it. Right. And, you know, you can have a team, you know, thank God his team makes up for that. But they're not going to be able, I mean, if he's disinterested now on the front end of a decision, when things get really tough in the middle, <laughs> you know, what's he going to do? And mm-hmm. what I thought was interesting about his speech last night, you know, everyone's giving him a lot of credit for, you know, explaining why he's reversing his position. But the way he explained it was just basically say, you know, I'm going against my gut instinct here. You know, I'm going to listen to the experts. And it's almost as if he's setting, <laughs> setting up a, a, a situation where he can down the line just say, you know what, I should have gone my instinct. The generals were all wrong, and we're going to pull out. Yeah. It's almost a cynical, he was very cynical about the way he approached it. And he's getting a lot of credit for it, which I think is, that's kind of fascinating to me. That is interesting. I had not thought about it that way. And, and you're right. I mean, there is no shortage of wisdom and experience among that team when you think about General Mattis or H.R. McMaster or General Kelly. There does seem to be an acute shortage of diplomatic experience uh, that could help him understand what is required to get to an end game and get to a point where we can peacefully withdraw from Afghanistan. Yeah, I mean, he... Rex Tillerson is not that guy. Um, I don't think he's going to step up and suddenly be the envoy on Afghanistan. I mean, really, we need a Richard Holbrook. <laughs> yeah. You know, we need a, a, a person of consequence who can play that, that role, and we don't have that right now. And, you know, the team is, listen, they're all hardworking and well-meaning. You know, I have great respect for all of the, the folks in, the, in those jobs. But you've got to be able to understand that you have blind spots. And it's, it's clear that diplomacy and and political strategy is the president's blind spot. Mm-hmm. There's been some reporting recently about Iran's growing influence in Afghanistan. You know, that's not, I don't think, entirely new, but as an Iran expert and as a defense expert, is that something that, that concerns you or that you're seeing more of, or is this more of the same? You know, interesting, you know, we didn't, you know, it's always ever-present, and we just sort of kind of got used to it, but it, it's, I didn't see it as a growing thing. Now, I'm, I've been out of government now for several months, so maybe things have changed, but... You know, it wasn't the, the thing we were most concerned about on Afghanistan. What we were most concerned about, frankly, was sort of Pakistani, you know, behavior. So thinking about external actors. Now, interestingly, General Nicholson has, had, has also said that the Russians are meddling. And that's concerning to me, because I do think that the Russians have, you know, ill objectives towards us. And if they're, you know, providing more support to the Taliban, that could be a problem over time. Yeah. I know your focus in earlier on in the Obama days was Iran, and that took up a hell of a lot of time. <laughs> but I mean, when you think about that 09 decision and the, you know, the enormous surge of troops and money that was sent over to Afghanistan, do you think that there were outputs that made that commitment worth it? I mean, was there a notable improvement 
in the situation on the ground, governance, anything. And I say that knowing that Hamid Karzai was in power for a lot of that time, and he was an utter nightmare to deal with uh, on every level. You know, that's a really good question. You know, I, I do think it was worth it. Um, the Karzai problem aside, I think, you know, showing the American commitment, and, you know, President Obama ran on Afghanistan mm-hmm. being under-resourced and being the good war, and, and I do think it was important for him to make that decision. Whether or not it made a material difference, I think, you know, at this point, um, I think we're seeing the answer to that. Yeah, and you just made this point. When, when Obama ran for president in '07 and '08, talked about Afghanistan as the war we need to win. The strategic priorities were to bolster the government, to retake territory we had lost, build up Afghan security forces, and that was deemed like a core national security interest that we were willing to spend billions of dollars on and put tens of thousands of troops in harm's way. That was 09, 010. Since then, we've had the Arab Spring. We've had the complete collapse of Syria. You've had the rides of ISIS. When you think about that current global security situation, what's your cold-blooded assessment of where we should rank the Taliban and our interests in Afghanistan versus all the other stuff going on? Listen, any any you know administration and president has to look across you know the the horizon and see all the problems. You know, I, I tend to think that at this point in time, when the world is kind of questioning our reliability, and we've got all these threats popping up, and it just feels like we have a lot to handle, I think that you know inducing more instability in Afghanistan by leaving would be worse than what we're dealing with now, mm-hmm. and that's just a cold assessment. I read that in your piece in foreign policy, and I thought that's one of the first arguments that made sense to me. Like, I despise the argument that you read all the time that's like, we need to do X in Y country to send a message to some other country, like North Korea or Iran. But what you said there made sense to me uh, on some level, at least. Yeah, I mean, listen, there are are opportunity costs, you know, to what we're doing, for sure. I mean, I've alluded to one on China, but... You know, at the same time, there are there are risks, and you, you know when you're trying to balance the risks across the board, you tend to make tough choices. Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher, and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, "Do your worst." But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the Friend of the Pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com slash store to shop. All right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House, or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference, sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com. And this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidates committee. Are you
you like me and tracking the polls obsessively this election year? Well, Dan Pfeiffer's right there with you, and he's taking them seriously, but not literally. Take an average of the polls. Don't forget about any one poll. And the thing that we try to tell everyone in every episode of this podcast is a poll that has Biden up to and a poll that has Biden down to, they all tell you the exact same thing, which is this is a very, very close race. The goal of this podcast is to help people understand polling and freak out about it just a little bit less. Explore the latest polls, what they actually mean, and whether or not it's time to hit the panic button. Tune into Polar Coaster with Dan Pfeiffer, Cricket's latest subscriber-exclusive show. To get access, subscribe to our Friends of the Pod community only at crooked.com slash friends. The New York Times did a, a long piece at the end of the Obama administration that talked about sort of his journey on Afghanistan from those beginning days and the, the Afghan review and the decision to send tens of thousands of more troops there and, and to, to call it the war we need to win to, you know, a decision to all but get out. I think they left, what, was it 9,800 troops in Afghanistan? Was that was that the residual force level? It's actually around 8,400. 8,400, sorry. kind of where it's been lingering. 8,400, right. And one of the quotes in that story from President Obama was, we shouldn't assume that every time a country has problems that it reflects a failure of American policy. Now, obviously, that's, you know, sort of in defense of his choices. But is there some truth to that? And, and is like understanding and internalizing that and admitting that an important piece of U.S. foreign policy going forward for all these global challenges? Yeah, I think it is. I mean, you know, there's the question of, you know, how much agency do we really have? You know, I tend to, to think that we as America, we're, we're different. And I like the fact that we're different than mm-hmm. the Chinese or others. So I do think we make a difference. But he's also right that, you know, there are lots of factors at play in these countries. And, you know, keep in mind in Afghanistan, I mean, they call it the graveyard of empires for a reason. There's been a lot of countries that have struggled with this. The Russians themselves, the, the British, of course, you know, fought their, their wars there as well. And, you know, it's a tough place, and there's a lot of history. And sometimes we're not the biggest player. Sometimes it's the undercurrent of tribal movements. It's, you know, sort of historical perspectives. So I think the president uh, definitely has a point there, President Obama. In four years, 10 years, like, what do you think is the best case scenario for Afghanistan? Like, what should we hope for? I think the best case scenario is that the place hasn't completely dissolved into an open civil war. Cool. <laughs> you know, and, and that we're largely, you know, the security situation is maybe improving and, you know, Kabul is still pretty secure and the major population centers are pretty secure and under the control of the Afghan government. Mm-hmm. I think that's, and that's sort of almost status quo. I mean, in some ways, status quo might be the most we can, can hope for. I mean, I I do really worry about a political breakdown in Afghanistan almost as much as I worry about a security breakdown. And if, if the politics break down, you know, between Ghani and Abdullah and all the factions, I mean, that's when things could get really ugly on, on the civil war side. Right. I mean, certainly the, the inability for the government in Iraq to be representative of the people, to make decisions, to do anything right led to the rapid decline in the security situation there. But so does your vision for Afghanistan essentially mean that the tribal areas on the border between Afghanistan and Pakistan will continue to be lawless and that some of the southern provinces like Helmand province that have been, you know, Taliban hotbeds forever will will sort of be at best only partially under government control? Uh, I think that's accurate. Yeah. I, you know, I think the we have to accept the reality that the Taliban are going to play a role in Afghanistan uh, at some point. And 
my preference would be that that role is, you know, negotiated through a peaceful settlement as opposed to one on the battlefield. You know, but I do think we have to accept the fact that there are going to be large parts of Afghanistan that aren't going to be, you know, firmly under a central government control. So it's a it's a hard reality, but and it's, some people will say, well, you're just accepting defeat, but I. I think that this is how this is going to end. I mean, we're going to, it's going to end in a way that Taliban has some role to play. Right. I mean, I just, people who disagree with that point, what do they think is going to happen? Do they think that we're going to just be able to kill every last individual or leader in the Taliban? Like, I, I don't understand. I'm trying to paint a picture of the counterpoint so people understand what that would look like. And I'm I'm actually struggling to do it. Well, we're not going to be able to, you know, kill every single member of the Taliban because large parts of the population are the Taliban. Right. Yeah, I mean, this is, what, again, going back to the, this, this is not going to, there's not a military solution to Afghanistan. It's going to end through a political solution. Now, the military effort can help you get to that political solution, which I, I think is the theory behind what they're trying to do. Mm-hmm. But what bothers me is that you know, if the the idea is that somehow we're going to decisively win against the Taliban, or excuse me, the Afghans are going to decisively win against the Taliban on the battlefield with a few thousand more U.S. advisors, I mean... It's ludicrous. Kind of silly. Now, I hope that, that I'm wrong. <laughs> I hope that, you know, this does work. Uh, and I want our troops to succeed, and I want the Afghans to succeed. I just, you know, we have to be clear, you know, in terms of lining up our means to our ends. Yeah. Well, I guess... To sum it all up, I'm glad President Trump gave the speech last night. It is, it continues to be strange that you know you just never hear about what's happening in Afghanistan. It's completely off the news, off the front page of the paper. So you know it's good that he talked about it. It's I think pretty bizarre not to offer the American people any kind of clarity about the troop increase number or their core mission when. I believe all of that will have to become public at some point, right? Because of congressional briefings or. You know, yeah, he's going to have to tell means. Congress at some point. <laughs> yeah, so anyway, well, yeah. whatever got them through a news cycle, I guess. But I think this was a very, very tough policy challenge for President Bush and then President Obama and now President Trump, and um, it will remain that way. Well, thank you for talking about it because, you know, Afghanistan doesn't really get much attention and, you know, most Americans are psychologically <laughs> shut it out of their mind. And so I think it's important. We need to talk about it with yeah. folks on the ground out there. I read someone who described it as the American people almost have a psychological break from the war in Afghanistan. It's like they just sort of need to not talk about it anymore. But you're right. We should talk about it. So thank you for coming on the show and offering wisdom uh, and experience and just and all the all the right answers, of course. All, well, all the right. But look, you know, I think more important than right answers is honesty about failings along the way. And uh, I really appreciated you offering those insights and, and talking with me today. Thank you very much. It was great. Thanks, Kelly. Bye. Bye. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's OMRI certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. 
Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them Miracle-Gro.